1: Hello and welcome to Your Book, the podcast for literary nosy parkers. I'm your book inspector, Daisy Buchanan. First, admin. Huge thank you to everyone who has supported my novel Insatiable this year. If you haven't met Violet yet and you like your stories funny and filthy, the paperback is coming in February and the special edition is now available for your book listeners to pre-order from Waterstones. Apple, Waterstones and The Independent and Times Radio have chosen it as one of their top novels of 2021. The special edition includes a bonus scene, an essay about sex and creative writing, and it has sprayed edges. Waterstones also have exclusive signed copy of my new novel, Careering, which is coming in March. Stylist, Good Housekeeping and Sheerlucks have all picked it as one of their top novels for 2022. Now, on to today's guest, a prolific author who's sold millions and millions of books, Adele Parks. Ever since her first novel, Playing Away, obsessed readers over 20 years ago, Adele has been asking difficult questions. Why do good people do bad things? How well do we know the people we are closest to? And what lurks behind the most perfect surfaces? We're here to celebrate the forthcoming paperback publication of a 21st novel, both of you. And we talked about how curiosity informs Adele's reading and writing life. Expect Jackie Collins, Jane Austen and Enid Lighton. Rather than um, start at the very beginning, I'd like to jump in and talk to you about uh, Jackie Collins, because I think when we first met, we were having
2: a bit of a Jackie love-in. We certainly were. You said don't start at the very beginning, but I think Jackie almost is my very beginning. Because I always say I came from the type of family who had books all around the house. And immediately people imagine huge, dusty tomes of, at the very least, Dickens. But it wasn't like that in our house. Books were for entertainment. They were completely joyful. And um, My mum had a lot of things like Jackie Collins, Jilly Cooper. Uh, lace, all those sort of books that were very 80s, lying around the house that I managed to get my hands on at sort of 10 year old, which is probably far, far too early, but loved. And um, and th- and very early on, I was already wanting to be a writer and just saw the joy of entertaining and offering escapism. We were, I mean, I always describe us as a very normal family. My um, dad was Worked for ICI, he was an engineer. My mum had jobs around the children, so to speak. So, you know, anything from cleaning to packing tea bags in Tetley's to receptionist jobs, she would do whatever. So these books were escapism, gave her an opportunity to enter a significantly more glamorous and sexy life. And so I massively admire Jackie Collins for the joy she has given um, hundreds of thousands of people across the globe across the years
1: can you remember the first book of your mums that you picked up and thought wow this
2: is great yeah and also that i wasn't allowed really um But people, I think people still do, but we definitely swap books between houses. We had um, a number of sources getting hold of books. So libraries were our first and foremost. I will love to talk to you about that. We also had um, on our local market, Stockton Market, you could take a book back and then buy a new one. And it would be 10p if you're buying it new, but it was 5p if you were bringing one back. And sort of all the neighbors, which you know shows how old I am, that those prices were so cheap. But um, all the neighbors would sort of do the same and would all swap books amongst us. And for some reason, a Virginia Andrews' book, Flowers in the Attic, landed in our house when my sister was reading. My sister's three years older than I am. She was reading something else. My mom was reading something else. So I just picked this book up and I read it first. And then said to my sister, "Oh, you should read this." I was 12. She was 15. She read it. And she went, we can't let mum read it. (laughs) Mum will then know what we have read. So we were sort of like hiding this book from my mum and the neighbour who it belonged to kept coming back and saying, have you read it? And my mum's like, I can't find it. It's in the house somewhere. You know, we live in a normal size house, but we had literally hidden this book. And eventually my mom read it, but luckily her mind wasn't, you know, she wasn't like completely on on what we were up to. And she just said, girls, you mustn't read this book. And we went, oh no, we'll never (laughs) read that book. (laughs) We both had already read it first. Because actually the, the, you know, the subject matter in Flowers in the Attic, it's, you know, it touches on incest, there's child abuse, there's all sorts of things that I'm certain we would protect 12 year olds from now. Um, But in those days, there wasn't so much sort of young adult books. You went from children's books directly to whatever you could sort of pinch off your parents. And actually, I work a lot with literacy now and I have done sort of for the last 15 or so years. And um, one of the questions I'm often asked by very keen mother readers is, is they'll often say my son or my daughter has lost the love of reading. And what can I do? And I say I always say ban a book. As soon as you ban a book and tell them they can't read it, I promise you they will read that book. So it's my my big tip in life. If there's something you think is vaguely inappropriate for your children, (laughs) yeah, get them to read it. That's such good
1: advice because I think Flowers in the Attic, even though obviously it's got so many very adult themes, and it's such a sort of, there's, as you say, so much going on. And I just remember reading it, and it it reminded me a little bit like when um, at the start of the first lockdown, when I was watching Tiger King and just with every page, like, no, no, that can surely she's not going to, no, no, no. Yes. The, I think the universe has that. It feels like the most brilliant sort of teen YA writing where it is so immersive and propulsive and the story really grabs your attention in that way.
2: It totally does. And actually it's also got the devices that young adults, books ought to have which is it's a world where there are no adults these children have Mm. been isolated because of the cruelty of adults but they have been isolated so they have to become the adults and they have to create their own world and that as a as a young person is always fascinating because if I mean I certainly was and I think many many young adults are usually banging at the door of adulthood and wanting Mm. to get out there and this in this book represented all of that.
1: It's ironic, isn't it? That being in the attic represented a sort of escape. Like, well, at least no one's telling us what to do. We're trapped here, but we can get on with it.
2: Yes. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It's so sad. If you ever reread that book as an adult, it's just a scandal, it's just dreadful, which I presume is the perspective my mum was coming from. I was reading it thinking, oh, This is teaching me a lot about sex, how marvelous! <laughs> and um, you know, I was quite pleased with all of that. And I remember thinking, The sort of Christopher, the oldest guy, was uh, was really handsome, and I quite had a sort of book crush, which I often have book crushes even now. So I think all of that lovely stuff was happening for me, but from an adult's point of view, if you read that, you do care your children which obviously my mom does and um, she she was horrified that we were we were being traumatized by it but it goes to show you can't know what you're protecting someone from or what might or might not traumatize somebody tell me about your book crushes oh I so many I nearly always have one on the go I think that's why I became an author so that I could find the perfect man which is so dismissive of my very almost perfect husband who is adorable but um yeah I think from quite early on I mean it's not a new crush I think every woman in the country at some point has had this one but I was a girl attracted to the Darcy I think because I, you know, from Teesside, normal sort of working class family, the idea of, you know, slightly worrying about money all the time, which, of course, the Bennett girls are. uh, The idea that somebody would swoop in and um, be a bit standoffish. And so you got the chance to reject him until he worked out your greater good. And your, you know, your, your intellect, that's that was my ultimate dream that somebody would ultimately see my sort of intellect and moral worth. I think I was about 13 or 14 at this point. Um, I suppose as I got older, the scales, the balance and the scales tipped. The fantasy was much less about someone else rescuing me and much more about me doing the rescuing on my own and, and finding some agency myself. So book crushers don't have to be um, uh, they don't have to be limited to the the, the gender you fancy or both genders that you fancy. They can be just literally, But crushes can be on who you could be and how you could change the world and become somebody uh, exceptional and interesting and important. And I think that's what books always offered me. As I mentioned, obviously, with the early books, there was a lot of escapism and fun, but I think there were a lot of lessons as well to be learned about you could be a very different person to the person you are but through a book you have the opportunity to understand that person a lot more. I suppose you know that's what
1: happens with Lizzie Bennet isn't it that she is has she has the room to sort of realise her full potential because someone sees her for who she is and I think that it's partly because there are so many people in that novel who don't really see lizzie she's the sort of yes they don't see any of the women
2: yeah except as as wives and daughters and and sisters but um i mean that was the time they were in i mean another jane austen and a book crush i had was on emma but that was for a totally different reason emma is so flawed and Mm. that i liked about her too i kind of thought goodness, you have everything going for you. You know, you're, you're an incredibly good-looking character. You're very wealthy. Your father is devoted to you. Um, you're the center of everybody's world. I think she was at that point in my life, literally the opposite to me in every single way. Um, but uh, she messed up and that sounds awful, but that gave me hope too, because it made me realize that, you know, you could be looking at someone else's life and think it was pretty perfect, they could still mess up, we're all human, we're all flawed. Um, So I had a bit of a book crush on, on the very unworthy Emma too. Well it's interesting because I think I see that
1: theme coming up so much in your novels and this fascinating idea of how we see and how we're seen and who we want to be in this idea of perfection with women especially and I think Emma in that way was so ahead of its time and it really is radical you know now we talk about like oh you know flawed women and unlikable women and to have not just someone who's flawed but someone who seems invulnerable to become vulnerable someone who's kind of arranging everything you know whereas normally you have someone who's maybe starting with less and the amazing literary I say trick makes it sound manipulative and I don't think it is but you know we do all Love Emma. And we, can't, we all want to be Emma more than we want to be Fanny Price. I am a total Fanny Price apologist because in my heart, I'm quite wet and pathetic.
2: But she wins the day. Fanny wins the day. I think you're uh, we absolutely hit on something. In my books, I often write a heroine who la- lacks self-awareness and and that's what she finds. I equally write uh, male lead characters that lack self-awareness they just struggle to find it more. And, uh, but they do often, you know, I think that's one of the biggest gifts we can and have in life, some level of humility and some level of knowing I will mess up. I just will mess up. And when I mess up, I hope I've been forgiving enough of other people who've messed mm. up that they will then forgive me when it's my turn. Because I think that's who we all are. And I'm a, a big advocate of the apology and the moving on and and getting better. I don't think there is room or there oughtn't to be room for shaming other people. I think actually we ought to take on a little bit more shame of ourselves and therefore want to be better not want to be better because everyone tells us we have to be better but want to be better stronger funnier more interesting more empathetic because we know it will make us you know better and in the true sense of the word more interesting and so a lot of my heroines are those people they're scandalous and dreadful and do awful things I mean right from the very very first novel I wrote which is playing away which now seems relatively mild but basically it was a woman who um was married happily happily married beautiful gorgeous husband at home and friends and she's just bored she's really really bored and has an affair which is such a destructive thing to do but can I promise you not unheard of a really normal thing to do yeah sad, sadly normal um and then suffers for it quite quite badly because she's not a dreadful human being she's done a dreadful thing Um, And at the time it was so scandalous, people couldn't understand why a woman would have an affair. This book's um, now 21 years old and people couldn't understand why a woman would have an affair just for sex really, just for the fun of it. Um, And because she, even the character can't understand why she would do it. So she tries to justify it by falling in love and she's clearly not in love with this man. Hasn't got the qualities that she ought to fall in love with um, or admire in any way, shape or form. And it was so scandalous, and it caused such such a reaction. And I loved it. And I thought after that, oh, I'm never going to write an easy heroine. I'm just not. <laughs> I'm going to always write the type of heroine that people raise their eyebrows, but secretly kind of go, well, what would she do next? Um, and I think I, to, I think I've just taken that to the, the huge extreme with uh, with my latest. Both of you, which is a book about uh, two women who go missing. And I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you an exclusive now, Daisy, because we're friends and we've known each other forever. Yeah, we've played with this because the book's out already in hardback and it's coming out in paperback. And we've played with different ways of talking about this book. And in hardback, we talked about two women that go missing and there is a profound um, link between them. And the link between them is the thing that sort of blows everybody's socks away I mean it it, Mm. I hope (laughs) it is the thing that uh it is I think it is the final law that women literally can't break uh, Mm. and they do um and, and being
1: like cagey and what, what i say because well, it's and i'm saying, sure lots of people have read it but if, um... i'm
2: wondering whether we can say oh i thought we could say in the podcast and you don't use it as part of the advertising mm. of the podcast and, and people <laughs> really listen because then yes, we'll listen an for easter extra, egg an easter egg so um so yeah she's she's a bigamist it's the same woman and we find this out in the book and um, we then find the question is, you know, yes, she, she she has gone missing. They have gone missing. Mm. Did she run away? Did she run towards something new again? Or have one of the husbands got some level of responsibility or somebody else? Um, so it's not just a book about go, a woman going missing, which I think would be a book that we've all read where yeah. the woman is a victim and she goes missing. It's not that at all. It's a book about a woman who really, really pushes social boundaries. Mm. So yes, that's an Easter egg that you're only going to find if you listen to <laughs> Daisy's podcast.
1: It's um, it's hidden, but not, um, not entirely okay. obscure. But I mean, that, I just, I love that story so much because it's something that I've sort of wondered about all the time you know going off and and being a bigamist myself but (laughs) I think we all crave double maybe maybe, new for 2022 bigamy um but we crave you know sort of duality and what we can explore and I think we have affairs because we want stories I think it's all very very meta I'm not saying I've had an affair but I think that when people have that urge it's not bad or wicked it's just a craving for the excitement you get to be we all want to be you know heroes and heroines that's how we see ourselves I I think when life
2: is fine but flat you feel like I want an arc I want a bit of drama yeah I think that's true I think we are um we're very lucky aren't we the the vast majority of people we're talking to that'll be listening to your podcast live in the western world with a huge amount of comfort and therefore we do perhaps put ourselves in the forefront of, um, uh, of the world, perhaps more often than we should. And yeah, I think uh, uh, this duality is something I look at all the time. I also think we're more complex than good or bad, right Mm. or wrong. I think, you know, humans have so many shades to us. And if we If we had a little bit more compassion and empathy and allowed for that, we'd all be much more comfortable. I think the world is getting increasingly diametrically opposed. I hear people say, well, I can't be friends with them because they don't agree with me. (laughs) And I think, no, no, those are the people you're meant to be friends with. It's really easy being friends with people that agree with you all the time. They're just echo chambers and that's terrific. But it's also a bit of an effort to go off and be friends with or understand or even tolerate people that disagree with you and i think that's what books can teach us to do Mm. and certainly in my characters who often there's a lot of duality in my characters um, and i suppose that's me trying to talk about the fact we are complex and this woman in particular she she's simply in love with two people she's desperately in love with two people and she doesn't know how to carve up her life and um, you know, I don't. I won't tell you how she gets into this situation of being a bigamist because that really is the fun of the book. Mm. But she she is a bigamist. It, it breaks laws. It's laws of the land. It breaks hearts because it, there's a moral law there. Um, because we have all grown up with the Elizabeth Bennets and and even the you know mm. even the uh, Jackie Collins and the Jilly Coopers gave yeah. us the story that you're looking for the one. Nobody talks about look, looking for the several. Um, you know, so, uh, so, although in real life, we are very happy to have perhaps more than one child. We definitely have more than one parent. We have more than one friend. We accept that in many other angles of our lives, we expect to be fulfilled and offer love through multiple channels. But in sexual relationships, we give ourselves this construct that there should only be one which is great fodder for me can i tell you <laughs> on that theme
1: of not agreeing with people um, yes. i'd love to hear about any characters in books that you would oh. like to be friends with or well they... who you'd least like to have over christmas <laughs> you'd most like
2: to have over christmas maybe. yes i mean it's interesting isn't it because even i mean at least likely like over for christmas for me is an absolute no brainer American Psycho. Don't want to be near him. <laughs> Definitely, you know. That book actually made me faint, which in a way makes it one of the worst books and one of the best books I've ever read. I think because I have a heightened imagination, you know, I, I took it further than even the words on the page. And I just find it very grisly and the life he was leading, he was obviously a banker, I've never been a banker, but I worked in advertising it around the times so he was a banker. And so, Saw was kind of on the peripheral of, of seeing these sort of, you know, champagne-fueled evenings in the crystal, uh, sort of, mm. uh, you know, the investment bankers could buy and almost bathe in. and um, and the And the cruel brutality of these very successful, often men, let's be honest, would display against other humans, often women, let's be honest. And um, it was tragic to watch, but it was horrifying to read. So, yeah, I wouldn't want him for Sunday lunch.
1: Well, I think the worst thing is, even if, um, you know, the, all the murdering and terrible behaviour aside, if you went around his, we like, we have no turkey, we have cocaine and we have vodka.
2: Yes, we have cocaine, vodka and crystal champagne. Of which, <laughs> can I say, one out of three would be all right for me there. <laughs> I am quite the champagne drinker. Um, I would like Dorothy Parker, Brought back from the grave, brought back from the dead, and have her. I think she'd be a really hilariously sardonic character in the on around your Christmas table, just kicking out witticisms. I don't know about characters specifically, but thinking about authors generally, I suspect Evelyn Moore, who was one of my favorite authors, would be hard work around a table. So that's interesting, isn't it? Mm. I love his books, um, but I think he was a person in a lot of pain. And found the world quite disappointing. No one wants that at Christmas. Everybody wants the people that sort of are jolly. I would want the character. I know who I'd want. Um, In that book, Why Mummy Swears, she'd be hilarious. Because (laughs) however bad your Christmas is, Mm. her Christmas would have gone worse. You know, she'd have burnt the turkey and, and, you know lost the kids presents and uh, the Christmas tree would have fallen down. And so any disaster I had to face on Christmas day, she would sort of be quite forgiving of and probably just pour me another drink. Yeah. I think that's really
1: interesting about Evelyn Moore. He was such a a chronicler of people and obviously paid a lot of attention
2: to people. Do you have any favorite? I do. I love his. Um, So I love um, Handful of Dust um, because it was such an interesting time of history, you know, he was part of a very, very privileged set. He was on the he was on the down of the privileged set. you know, there were people with extraordinary wealth and he wasn't. he was sort of scrabbling around, which must be quite an awful position to be in to sort of know you once had it slash still see it go on on it me being um everything that the it people are, you know the glamour, the beauty, the hope, the wealth. and of course, Uh, post-World War I all those people that stood for those things Mm -hmm. if they were in their sort of later 20s or 30s had then been pushed into this horrible pointless devastating war and had not come back the same people and then were watching the next generation kind of almost not war deniers but sort of very, very keen to get on with their own lives quite naturally mm. and quite understandably. And so um, he was in this very peculiar time of history where he must have hankered after something that had just gone, it just gone. It was never coming back. It hasn't come back, has it? And, you know, mm. thank goodness, because that means, you know, there's endless middle classes now that are doing quite well because the wealth has spread out much more evenly. Um, but he missed it and he missed not only the wealth and the beauty and the parties and the warm fires and the big stately homes, but I think he also just missed the innocence and Hmm. the hope and the, the consistency. And I think his novels are very good at, um, at talking about that. And he was somebody whose marriage had failed. And so writing about a marriage that had failed was, was clearly part of, his, his self-therapy. We all understand how us uh, authors are basically just constantly working on our own therapy through our books. <laughs> and I so I think he would be an incredibly interesting, tremendous man and and a great artist and author. But I don't think I'd want him around my Christmas table because mm. I think that he's sad.
1: <laughs> but I'd not really thought of that, that I guess he couldn't have written a book like Vile Bodies about these people without feeling a little bit on the outside of it. If he was a very wealthy, self-assured, happy man, he felt like he belonged entirely in that world. He wouldn't be able to step outside
2: it and look at it. Correct. In fact, I think in um, both of you, my latest, I actually have a little bit about that exact thought, which is if you are at the top of the social pinnacle, whatever that might be at the time, and for millions of years, it's basically been um, sort of white, rich male, ideally white, rich, tall, strong male, um They are the top of the the tree for a long time, so they don't look around. They don't look around and think, "Who can I help?" or or not many of them do. Some do. Who can I help or change or how can I change this setup? Because they don't even see that the setup needs to be changed because they're looking at it and thinking it's perfect. So somebody like Evelyn Waugh who ticked a lot of those boxes. You know, he was a a white male and born into a certain class. But I think he was at the stage of his life where he. I'm guessing. I mean, I'm no his family would probably say to me, no, that's not at all what happened. But I would imagine that he would be looking around and sort of think, oh, things are changing now. And, and we, we, you know, things ought to be changing and it's not all quite as perfect. I think the people that bring change in life generally moving on, not not giving opinions to people who I've really no idea about, but giving my own opinion. (laughs) The people that change things generally are the people that are uncomfortable with something because it's not necessarily in your interest to change things if everything's perfect. Now, all that said, um, the laws that have protected the more vulnerable have invariably come from white, rich, middle-class males. And I think we forget that. And it's kind of worth remembering the laws that protect uh, women or people of colour have historically been pushed through par- Parliament by the decent guys, you know, because they exist too. And I think that's always always worth remembering, not just at Christmas, but always worth remembering. Definitely, you know, Atticus Finch. I know there we go. There are, I think... He was, he was one of my massive crushers. I just, oh, I I wanted to just sweep in and be stepmom to his children, which was ironic because I was kind of the same age as, uh, as <laughs> at the time. So I don't know how I was going to manage that. I think I knew that they would always stay the same age and I would one day grow up. And then when I grew up, I could like zo- zone in on that world. I don't know how that worked in my crazy head, but it did.
1: Oh gosh, I think that's a really astonishing thing and sometimes reading books and books I've loved in my teens and coming back to them and think, Oh, I'm now older Yes. <laughs> they were older than me and that feels quite startling. Um I'm just because it's just been reissued um I'm rereading Rachel's Holiday for I don't know how many times I've read that book but you know thinking that Rachel's 27 and when I read it thinking oh you know goodness imagine being 27 and and this happening and I you know that seemed terribly grown up to me and now I'm reading it and I'm thinking about myself at 27 and I wasn't in rehab for cocaine addiction but I'm like yeah I was a total mess also
2: oh well actually it's funny you should bring that book up because um marion keys as rachel holiday was one of the books i think gave me the confidence to know i could go and be a writer because marion uh just writes from the heart it made me think as a northerner well actually i'm not going to be held back by my inconsistent should we call it inconsistent grammar um, and my, uh, you know, and my my own viewpoint, I'm actually going to showcase that and give that a, a moment because that's exactly what Marion did and it absolutely worked for her. Um, when I was 27, I thought I was completely organised and sorted because I was married. I had this massive job and I had a gold card from um, British Airways and I honestly thought I had completely got life sussed little did I know in a couple of years after that I would be a single mum and that marriage wouldn't be happening and I <laughs> and I would be in quite a different place so um but I think that that as you say when I read that book I didn't sort of relate to it on the well I related it on a hundred ways but not relate to the character I just felt so desperately sorry for the character and was mm. fighting for her and gunning for her but I didn't think it was me but I did think The fact Marion had introduced this whole set of possibilities that a no ordinary sort of you know uh, working class woman could write about her experiences and they would be valid and hundreds of thousands of people would want to read about those experiences and relate in some way.
3: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365 day returns
1: we'll be back with Adele soon but now it's time for my steal of the week mayflies by andrew o'hagan It's summertime in 1986 in Scotland. It's hot, everyone is restless, and James and his best friend Tully are going on a mission to Manchester for the legendary festival of the 10th summer at the G-Mex Centre. How will that weekend define their lives, and what will happen when James and Tully grow up? This is gorgeously and painfully evocative, a sharp shock back to the period of adolescence when all you have is your cultural capital, film lines and song lyrics reflective moving but never mawkish a peerless coming of age novel for grown-ups mayflies by andrew o'hagan is published by faber and faber and out now now back to adele remind have if you ever written any sequels are your books all happening in the same uh, universe each other they or?
2: sort of do so playing away um was about connie the the um The adulterer, that's poor Connie, you know, that's how we refer to her even now, 21 years ago, (laughs) Connie the adulterer. And she had a group of four very cool, lovely friends in the background, but the subplot of one of the cool, lovely friends is one of the cool, lovely friends was having an affair with another one of the friends, husband, and they And that marriage breaks up in the background. And actually, um, Connie almost doesn't notice because Connie is so self-absorbed. She's unaware that this dreadful thing is happening to two of her best friends that she's put together, you know, these two people. So in a way, she's a bit of a catalyst. Um, And seven years later in real time and seven years later in fictional time, I picked up Rose and Lucy's story and I called that book Young Wives Tales. So Connie and her husband, Luke, had gone to the... Um, background and they became the subplot and Rose and Lucy were able to sort of take center stage. And that was extremely exciting for me. I mean, they're all old, old friends going back to those characters and it was just a joy to write. It's a huge, chunky book because I just had a lot to say. Um, And then many, many years later, another 10 after that, so 17 years after I'd originally written Playing Away, I wanted to write about, um, funny enough, also about addiction, just talking about Rachel's holiday, but from a male um, point of view. And I also wanted to write about infidelity and a couple that had both of those problems in their house and how the woman thought the answer to their marriage was just having a baby and pushing on. And to him, it had driven him so far um, along a path of despair that he had become an alcoholic. And that book was called Lies, Lies, Lies. And I came up with the plot and I just thought, well, what kind of people would this be devastating for? And I thought, oh, I know the kind of people that everyone else around them is going brilliantly. And they feel like the couple that's left behind and all their friends are doing beautifully well. And I've got better jobs and better homes and multiple kids and all that. And the, you know, chocolate covered Labrador that behaves itself as opposed to <laughs> the one that wheeze on the carpet, you know, all that kind of thing. And um, and I thought, I know who those people are. That's Rose and that's Lucy and that's Connie because they've had their struggles relatively early on and sorted themselves out. How awful if you're the friends in their forties who have yet to sort yourself out. So I wrote about Daisy who was the fourth um, friend in the, in the friendship group and her husband, Simon. And obviously, um, Daisy's um, uh, sister was Rose, and her uh, and the friend Lucy and the friend Connie were all in the background. So they kept sort of circling around. All those books can be read as standalones. I think yeah. that's super important because I have fans younger than my uh, younger than my career, which I'm very <laughs> pleased about having fans younger than my career. But I have I have people that were sort of you know babies when the first book came out so it's great that they discover the first book they might discover of mine is lies 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 and then I say to them actually you can read the backstories of these characters (laughs) equally I have fans that have read every single one of my 21 books in the 21 years and have worked alongside me kind of thing you know and and I know pretty well actually who, who these people are because I meet them over and over again at a social, a, a real life of socials and events, but actually more on my social media. I'm very active on my social media and, and my fans know that and they know it's just me answering and me talking to them. So actually it's, it's probably about 20% of my working life just chatting to fans on, on, and readers on uh, Facebook and Instagram and, and Twitter and um, some of them were just so excited to start reading lies 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 and I would start getting emails going it's that Daisy isn't it it's that Simon (laughs) yes it is because there's Rose you know Um, and I think actually there's one more story about that gang that Uh, I actually want to tell I I have to see these girls through the menopause you know (laughs) I just literally need to take them there so I think in a few years time I'll visit them again Because it's so such a, you know, for for fans and readers,
1: these people do, you know, live and they sort of continue to run around. And it's that funny thing of they're always where you leave them, but they are also doing things and living lives. And I'm sure that,
2: you know, as an author, they're living and working. Absolutely. I mean, normally when I finish a book, I'm ready to let them go. I've, you know, I've taken them where I am a planner. So I absolutely know how my plots are going to work out. And I've known that from the first word I write on the page. So by the time I get to the end, I'm like, yeah, done with you, done. Mm-hmm. But there are occasions um, where I think afterwards, oh, but, you know, they were lovely. And there was that girl in the background and her, she was a bit unresolved and because she was quite often the subplot. And also mm-hmm. in real life, I think that's so important. You know, we talk, talk again about um, we put ourselves center of our own lives, which is important and of course we are but you also know that your friend in the background something incredible is happening to her or and you want her to have her moment and I feel that as an author too and sometimes just want to go back to characters and, and give give them some breath.
1: Are there any books that you've read where you can think of characters where you're like, oh I really would love for them to have their own story?
2: Yes and the things like so I love the book, The Rosie Effect, by Graeme mm. Simerson, I think it is, Graeme Simerson. That sounds right. I can pick yeah. the cover. Yeah, I can too. Everyone knows that cover. And I love it that it's from his point of view, because again, it's a sort of unreliable narrator because the the, the guy's on the spectrum. So he is only able to give us a limited understanding of what is going on because he can only see it from his point of view. And you can, you know, little Rosie's in the background chipping away, to developing this relationship, making herself available, uh, understanding him with having infinite amount of patience to allow him to become the person he needs to be um, and yet keeping her herself. And I always think, wouldn't it have been fun to see the exact same book from her point of view um Mm. you know for him to write it or for him to pair up with somebody and write write it from literally you know because it is called the rosy effect it's all about her but it's about her through his spectrum I would like to see a book about him but seen through her eyes I think that would be quite interesting I think also there are some classics that I think couldn't we I'm not none of us are now particularly comfortable with the happily ever after, are we? Because we are all much more aware. And so I think it would be quite interesting to see how Jane Eyre pans out with Mr. Rochester. Mm. I would just, let's see if they ever, I don't know have kids or well you know do they what's the charity work that they do in their community how is it how do they manage with his disability um i just think there's there's more than nowadays i don't think we're comfortable with saying it all always ends the day that the 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 wedding bells ring you know we want to know what happens next we're very aware that a lot more exciting things happen other than your wedding day
1: Especially with those classic books where, you know, because they're all written about a time when it was a sort of an economic necessity and it wasn't just a happy ending. It was the it, ending. It, was, so, it and, was safety,
2: wasn't it? It was a hmm. matter of safety. If you managed to get yourself in a um, a legitimate position and also no one ever talks about this, but it was a way to have sex. Let's be honest. <laughs> a way to have sex that was safe. Because if you got pregnant out of marriage in those days, that was going to lead to all sorts of trouble so you know good for her we feel james probably let's hope that james got a lovely flush about her the whole time because she's mm. having loads of fabulous sex with mr rochester
1: that's a book it really is although i was just wondering would she she have an affair and like people oh God, are going no. to kind of no. come with like the pitchforks and be very upset oh, no. about that I idea
2: don't think, i don't think she would i want her I'm to just like, be having sex
1: with him okay we will that's absolutely yeah. not happened in the um in the dana <laughs> universe just i just thought of something where i would love more of it Diary of a Provincial Lady mm-hmm. and the characters in there are so fabulous and they're so vivid and they're all recorded in kind of single lives. but there's that woman I've completely forgotten her name but she pops up in a few of them and she's a sort of very glamorous and very rackety and quite scandalous yes. and she's always got lots of men after her and she's always sort of on her 19th husband and that's a book I'd yes. love to read
2: yes exactly exactly <laughs> But maybe the glamour of her is the fact that she flits in and out and you don't quite know her. But mm. it, it would be interesting because maybe having 19 husbands is quite lonely. And the reason she pops into the provincial lady's life <laughs> so much is because she wants that. Who knows? Yeah.
1: Who She's knows? secretly bored, even though she is. And she needs the, maybe she needs the audience. Yes. Um, Do you have um, a teetering reading pile? Are you quite good at knowing what you want to read, when you want to read it?
3: Mm,
2: um, Yes, I have a hugely teetering reading pile. Um, I love my job and every single aspect of it. I think the only thing that is
0: slightly,
2: and this sounds a weird thing to moan about, I get books sent to me all the time and people asking for endorsements and... um, reviews because I do um, a review column uh, for a monthly magazine and so I pick six books every month to to highlight as as book club choices and so I don't now do that perusing in a bookshop or in a library Mm -hmm. where I just sort of look at the cover and go I'll have this one I actually it's a little bit more scientific now where I sort of divide them all up I get them and I think right put them into I don't know feel good literary thrillers crime and then peruse that and think right I'm going to read a crime book today I'm going to start a crime book which one of these crime books have been delivered to me would I like which let's face it is and my husband quite often points this out to me he says can you imagine little five-year-old Adele who used to spend nearly every hour she could in the library a uh, local library being told that for a job people would send her free books I was like it's amazing. It's fantastic. So I'm certainly not grumbling about that. Please keep sending me books. But the slight awkwardness is I don't get through them all. Mm. That feels somewhat dishonest. So I do assure um, authors that send me books or publishers that send me books, I try to talk about them on socials. I do pass them on. They don't just get unread and unloved because mm. I think there's, it's a crime against humanity that books are just lying there um in great big to be read piles if somebody else I would rather pass it on to somebody else and they say to me you really missed out there you need to have this back again and make sure you read it at the moment the next thing I'm going to pick up is um The Haven which is Amanda Jennings next book I think Amanda's a really really good writer quite precise her descriptions are beautiful um there's always a a, like a a crime in a thriller it's a thriller you know but I think it's it's a sort of high level one that's quite quite beautiful to, to read and becoming involved in that world. She quite often, not always, but she quite often sets them on the coast um, in beautiful parts of our uh, British Isles. So that's always nice to come visit there with her. I'm also looking forward to reading Lucy Foley's The Paris Apartment. Yes, I've just got that. Yes, and I can't wait. Yes. I mean, I think Lucy's super. She's so I think she gets a scalpel to her work over and over again and edits and edits and edits because there isn't a wasted word on the page Mm. and you're in there. And I think I've heard her say that she takes her plots from Agatha Christie books and and so, you know, has plots, but she puts them in our modern world and gives them a modern twist. And I just think that's a fantastic tribute and, and something really exciting. And also the idea of going to Paris right now is, yes. is overwhelmingly exciting. Um, uh, she's a very glamorous person in real life, Lucy. And so I know that will translate onto the page and I'm, I'm about to enter into a very glamorous, although threatening and terrifying world. <laughs> so I I normally have a couple that I know those are the next two. I'm going to get excited so soon because um, I'll have a bit of a Christmas thing where I'll probably read three or four books over Christmas and then I'll probably read very few because I'll be writing again I'll be writing 2023's book because 2022's book is is done and dusted but come January I will be writing 2023's book so I read a lot less when I'm actually writing just so I don't get anyone else's voice in my head and don't get sidetracked um and just do the hours basically because that's the other thing if I have a good book on the go it's quite hard to just drag myself to the desk and uh and and get on with it
1: and I think that's you know a sign of a sort of you know you being a very passionate and involved reader and someone sort of brings your whole self to the reading but I find that I often if I'm writing I can reread if I just want to really study someone and think well how how does this person do that how are they introducing these characters how are they sort of they're creating this when I know the book really well ready it's safe, and I know I can sort of detach a bit, but anything where I'm reading because I desperately want to know what happens that's um, I'm in the danger zone yes, that's so interesting that 's
2: very well articulated that's exactly it so tell me more about um libraries libraries I love it Wait, i I love a moment to talk about libraries, so when I was um very little, so I mentioned I have a sister, just one and she's three years older than me, so it is the lot of the younger sister to wait for the older sister in every way, shape or form. So when I was in infant school, she was in juniors, slightly longer school day. Same when I went to juniors, she was at seniors. She was always at more exciting clubs, I don't know. But, um, and we lived a couple of mile walk away from our home. So we had to walk home together quite sensibly. So the, the rendezvous, the place to wait was the little local library. And from being really tiny, I thought that was the most exciting thing of my day. Obviously when I was very little, my mom would be waiting with me. And as I got older and it was just me and my sister walking home, I'd be waiting on my own. But from very little, my mom's a big reader. Um, we would just, she'd pick me up from school and then we'd go and wait in the library. And I always, from being tiny, thought it was like an airport. Even though at that stage in my life, I hadn't even been to an airport. I'd just seen them on TV and things. But I genuinely believed, and I remember trying to explain it to people, that I was going on a journey and I was going to go on an adventure. And I believe that now you pick up a book and you don't know where it's going to take you. Um, You might learn about a new country and a new culture, but you also you don't know where it's going to take you emotionally. Mm. And I would you were allowed three books out as an infant and I would take them home and read them that night and then bring them back. And it was actually uh, a librarian that suggested to me I ought to be an author. Beautiful story because I think by this time I was probably seven or eight year old and the librarians there knew me at Ecclescliff li- uh, Library knew me very, very well. One of them said to me one day, oh Adele, do you think you might grow up and become an author? And I was furious with myself because I didn't know what the word author meant. And Because I was a good reader and quite sort of I was a little bit cross that there was this word. If she said writer, of course I would have yeah. got it. So I said, oh, I don't know what an author is, which actually is always a sensible thing. Ask the question if you don't know. Don't bluff it. Um, so she said, oh, hang on a moment. And she rushed up and got an Ena Blyton and brought it back. And in those days, Ena Blyton's signature was sort of on the front of the book. Yeah. And she said to me, um, you see, Enid sits at home writing these books for you that's a real live person. She writes these books for you. And I actually, for many, many years, genuinely thought Ina Blyter was just writing for me. Um, (laughs) Kind of, you know, quite young, just a misconception. But, you know, really first time understood that somebody, there was a process, this book was written. And I remember then sort of researching sort of in an encyclopedia, the printing process and how would that work? And I used to then write books and make them and illustrate them and sell them to my granddad for 10p every (laughs) sunday night which bless him he obliged and would pay this 10p anything to keep me quiet i think
1: he didn't Um, get it for
2: 5p if he brought back the last no no he had to keep them i wonder you know i was quite commercial even then that sort of marvelous moment and maybe she said that to 30 kids that year I don't know but that marvelous moment of somebody suggesting something incredibly ambitious was life-changing for me and I do it all the time with young people children and and young adults and indeed adult adults I'm always saying to them there's still time go and do whatever you want if you if it's a book you want to write do that if it's a mountain you want to climb do that if it's accountancy exams you want to take do that um, your life starts today, every day, which is the yes. joy of it, you know, that you, you do have chances and opportunities if you believe you have. Um, and so this wonderful woman told me I could be an author. And after that, I sort of quietly would say it to people when, you know, when you say to kids what you want to be when you grow up, I would say an author. I think everybody was so blown away. It's so different. They sort of indulged it and allowed me to think that. And it was just always there for me. But I do think that was because I had the opportunity to to visit libraries, to browse at no cost the idea. Some books were a mistake. They weren't my kind of thing. Some books were amazing. And then I would ask the librarian, can you get any more from this author? I would then sometimes find out there was 50 more from that author. I would find out... There's
1: no, you know, you who know, were the authors you were asking for? Um, what did you well, I was and think? a big
2: Lena Blyton f- f- fan, which is now, you know, people are in or out of that sort of in terms of fashions. But personally, I thought she offered something for everyone. Mm. Well, when I was very little, I was all about the magic wishing, ch- uh, the magic faraway tree and the wishing chair. And that was because I wanted to escape, quite honestly. I really was unhappy at school, didn't like it at all. Big fat kid. Um, that was massively picked on and left out and lived a bit further away from the school. So didn't have sort of after school play dates and all those things that seem tragic when you're little. And the library and my books were my escape. And the idea that I could sit in a chair and magically take myself away the way you do in the magic wishing chair was just sheer heaven. And another story about my childhood because I didn't enjoy school or oh, primary school. I very much enjoyed my secondary school. Um, my primary school, I used to sit in front of the radiator to make myself hot before school and put talc on my face to make myself pale and fake illness because it was a double win. I didn't have to go to school and my mom would bring me back a book either from the library or if we were feeling flush. She would pick one up from the news agents. And, um, and so I loved the Ian My sister loved the uh, Mallory Towers and St. Clair's. And that was another moment when I got a sort of, boost about being an author, because I remember her coming to the end of those series and she was young, you know, about 12 or 13, and which put me at sort of nine or 10. And she was really upset, you know, that book hangover you get if you finish a book. And uh, she was really upset about no longer going to meet those characters and no, you know, they'd left school and she was devastated. And I said, we shared a, a bedroom and I was, we were in bunks and I was in bottom bunk and she was the top bunk. And I said to her, I know what happens to them in their holidays. And she said, how do you know? And I said, I've got some secret books. Complete lie, can I add? (laughs) I have have some secret books that Ina Blyton wrote just for me. And um, I know what happens to them in their holidays. And I'll tell you. And she, at that point, was making a big campaign for us to have separate bedrooms and to move me into the box room. But she allowed me to stay in her room for a lot longer because every night I would just tell her the story of what happened to the girls in their holidays and who they met and, you know, that kind of thing. And because Enid Blyton
1: was writing for you, for me secretly, and you were—you were right. That was your yes, your author career was
2: plagiarism, I suppose, stealing the concept. But um, fanfic, fanfic, fanfic—that's what it would be now. But in fact, it was just this glorious moment of my sister valuing something. My, you yeah. know, big sister, mm. how great is that valuing something you can offer, and you finding you're entertaining, and and that all came from libraries.
1: Because I mean, I was brought up with those books, and I know it's tricky because I think yes Enid Blythin, you know massively problematic in the way that I think a lot of people writing around that time with those values and ideas were but also I love The Faraway Tree and what I think is so powerful and so moving about those books even now is that they're going into this other world in the tree and the, the people who live in the tree are different from anyone they've ever known but they're They're kind and they treat each other with respect. And I think there's a lot there for children in terms of the way we celebrate and value each other and sort of celebrating differences, I guess. I totally agree. My dad still you know because I think he read them when he was a kid and my auntie Maria I guess would have had the the Mallory Towers it was never so much as St Clair's I don't know why but Mallory Towers he loved a lot and I think maybe loved them more than auntie Maria and the one he reads and I think he reads it every Christmas and he's read it so many times his all-time favorite is um the fifth form which I think is called in the fifth I know they've yes, all got slightly yeah. different titles and I think that's because the idea of them all
0: <laughs> Something emotional
1: fun. yeah I, I don't want them to leave Mallory Tales I don't want them to be in the sixth one, but yeah. the idea of the final book and them all leaving the sixth one is just so desperately saddened in the fifth you know they have always got that last year yes. ahead of them
2: I think with her, Aina Blythe and the other thing that she does absolutely be or did absolutely beautifully is in a way she was ahead of her time I mean she was in her time and we need to accept People are in their time. If you unpick everything, we'll soon be left with nothing. If we can't just say, you know, they did their best considering what they knew. I mean, there was a time in history that women with PMT got dunked and and murdered as witches. Let's not go back to that. Let's let that one lie. (laughs) But, um, But my point is, since... We have made progress. And I think with Ina Blyton, the thing that she did marvellously, that she really understood within her time, mm. that there were girls that were tomboys, that didn't want mm. to do the girly, pretty things that sort of were standard in practice. And she always had a fun outlier. And so she did give us a range of options of people we felt we could relate to. Obviously, we look at her books and they're, and they're very white, There's nobody or very few people of colour. Obviously, if there are gender, if there are both male and female children in the books the boys tend to say things like silly girl you know it, it it's or worse limited. awfully clever for a girl <laughs> yeah awfully clever for a girl you know is it totally limited but i think even then she might have been a bit tongue in cheek kind of thinking mm. we are though you know we are clever wake up and smell the roses but i think as you rightly point out the joy of her is i think she was teaching I, I, if anything if she was teaching anything or certainly highlighting acceptance and and difference in her in her world as as big as mm. her world was at the time I remember one of some of my favorites were um of hers were naughty Amelia Jane because I think I was quite naughty if I'm honest and so the idea that there was this sort of slightly scruffy kid that always had ink on her hands and mm. her uniform was a bit scruffy and uh, you know her, her buttons fell off her shirt all the time and but she meant well, but she got it so wrong so often. I think she's quite a nice character for us all to love. And again, that feels, you know, very contemporary, yeah. I think,
1: especially. And that's, I suppose, because I do remember feeling a little bit for shame. Like, I would have been Gwendolyn, not sporty. Yes. Bit, you know, like I said, bit, not sort of very kind of, you know, quite interested in, in looking nice. But actually, at a time when, you know, women were supposed to be quite gwendolyn it was quite radical, the alternative that she offered us and that and yeah quite like you know daryl hitting sally sorry there's a big spoiler so <laughs> listening to the Red but and i'm not for a second advocating you know violence but also you know now when we sort of read about violent women it's quite you know it's sort of still almost fetishized or seen as a weird thing or a shocking thing and that she sort of i'm not saying we should encourage girls to hit each other but i remember that i used to hit my i've got five younger sisters and it's not like i read mallory towers and thought great time for hitting but we were quite physically rough with each other because i was the biggest and i was like no lead by example control your impulses don't don't punch each other but i i didn't see that anywhere else girls just weren't supposed to do that and we did and we thought like we must be sort of freaks and outliers and it was strangely comforting to
2: know that so she was honest she was yeah, honest about really how, it, how it was. And and we're not all um, sugar and spice and all things nice all the time. We can't be.
1: So I know you have um, talked about this before, but are, are there any books you're looking at? And I know in 2022, 20, yes, 2022 is the year that it is next. I think I just wrote a lot of Christmas cards that said, looking forward to seeing you in 2021. So I don't know. I love that's going.
2: quite ironic. <laughs> we all were looking forward to seeing people in 2021 just change have your we tensors. did we? i don't uh, know yeah anymore. exactly
1: change your tenses really um, um any other books for 2022 that you're uh, yes or even books that you that aren't necessarily out next year but books that you, you'd like to read
2: there are people that i go back to every year and i know they're in series and that that sort of thing so i enjoy jessica fellow's uh mitford series mm-hmm. i haven't read the last one yet Um, I picked it up and started to read it and thought, oh, this should be my Christmas read and then put it down. So I know I've got that to look forward to. But it um, really, honestly, I know things will be coming out all the time. And there's usually sort of three or four books a year that I I say those at the end. I'm more about looking back right now. So I know within the next few weeks, I will go through Mm. all the books I've read. And I'll pick three or four out that I'll go, these these were the books this year. These were the these were the three or four that mm. I would say anyone should read them. And I would push them on people for years to come. And I'm pretty good at that. I, I get quite sort of, I remember reading um, Girl A by Abigail Dean in the end of the year before last. Mm. And I sent to her editor going, it's the best book I've re- read all year, you know, because it was, and it was, December and then they said oh can we use that quote in January I was like no it looks ridiculous in January. Don't <laughs> use the quote in January use the quote in December um but that's still a book you know it's been out a while now but it's still a book I would talk about and and recommend on mm. it's um y- you think it's going to be a book about a lot of horror because it's about one of those terrible situations where parents well like it's back to flowers in the attic but these mm. kids are l- locked up in their home and, and sort of abused but she does write it in such a beautiful and brilliant way that she avoids being gratuitous um it feels very American to me she's not American you might pick it up and think she's an American writer because they write they do write with a slightly different style and Mm. and she has that sort of elegance that they have but yes I'll soon be going through all my books and uh, pick up my favourites I'll probably tweet about them or something. Excellent. So we'll be looking out for that. Yes. I'm very excited to see your books of 2021.
1: One. yeah, I think that's sometimes because there's so much, and I think there's so, such a great focus on, you know, what's new and what's next and what's coming. And the books that you remember when the dust has settled and the things we think, I will never forget reading this. Yes. I think I felt that this year with Sorrow and Bliss, which oh, I, I read. read oh, well, it, I mean, it's unexpected because I think it wasn't what I thought it was going to be or even feared it might be i thought it might be quite earnest and i knew it was about you know mental health and anxiety but it's incredibly
2: funny um so should that go on my christmas said, pile list yeah okay. i think it's definitely definitely worth a look it's meg mason sometimes i'm asked what's the book that's being overlooked and i think actually i think the sad truth is there are endless books that are overlooked mm. you and i read an awful lot but i think if we sat here and named te- the last 10 books we read we wouldn't have more than one or two in common that's not a bad thing Mm -hmm. it's almost a worry when it's the opposite when everyone reads the exact same book and nobody's giving any other book a chance because I think you know recommendations are fantastic and obviously that's what we all um uh, that is the breadth of of the book industry people love if there's nothing more exciting Mm -hmm. than if you've read a good book to pass it on to someone else and encourage someone else to read it But I do think, uh, yeah, pausing, looking back. I don't do as much rereading as you do. I think, by the sounds, you do quite a lot of rereading. I don't know. I don't do it. I think the only time I've tried to do it, it didn't really work very well for me. There's certain books I always reread because I I know them inside out. I know them almost word perfect. And they're things like, well, they are the Jane Austens. uh, Uh. Already, you know, I just get them and I just know and they're kind of comfort and they're quite funny if Mm. I'm ever properly ill or something like that. But, um, and when I want to know what's coming, when I just can't, my life is so unstable that I can't cope with not knowing what's coming. Those are the books I've read. Yeah. But I once tried to reread one of my favourite ever books, which is Behind the Scenes of the Museum by Atkinson. Mm. And when I reread it, it just wasn't the same the second time round. And yet it had been the most profoundly moving book for me in my late twenties. And I had and I think, and I don't think I'm exaggerating here. I think in hundreds of interviews I had named that as my favorite book and then I reread it in my late 30s and I thought "Oh no, I feel quite differently about some things and I know what's happening and I know what's coming so no I'm fine now I would still tell other people to read that book mm. for their first time experience of it but isn't it interesting that some books stand up well not stand up for rereading because I don't think it's about the book I think it's about the person mm. I wasn't I didn't want to have that experience again but I do not do many things twice I'm not somebody who likes to visit the same holiday destination I don't uh I get bored if I go to the same restaurants you know there's there's people who like to do the same thing over and over and and I'm not that person and also I just think there are so many books out there yeah just keep reading is the thing And you want to preserve that perfect. The perfect moment. Because I think so
1: I mean, the thing that comes up all the time with this podcast is, you know, and I'm I'm bad at remembering plots. I can always remember the way a book made me feel.
2: Yes absolutely true or yeah I'm actually not too bad at plots but I'm terrible at as you've clearly gathered throughout this interview um terrible at names of the actual book or authors I can describe the covers beautifully I'm a very visual human so I can usually describe a cover to you in fact I color coordinate my library and um, so it literally is all uh, my shelves are in colors and people say how do you find anything and I think That's the easy way, isn't it? Because I know that's a green cover with an apple on the side, but I can't remember who wrote it. (laughs) So so it's just, it's interesting, isn't it? For somebody who obviously makes a living out of words, you know, you'd think I would remember names. But to your main point, I absolutely know how they feel and I know where I read them. And so for instance, the book, The Color Purple, I remember I was 19 when I read that. Oh, and we got sidetracked. I started telling you about how I fainted at um, reading American Psycho, which is true. Oh, gosh, we have got sidetracked. And the only other book that ever moved me to fainting was um, The Color Purple. And, and I fainted um, when I read that. And I quite often faint, not quite often, but a couple of times I fainted at movies because obviously you can't hide from it um I have actually been carried out of cinemas in a dead faint which is very Victorian woman of me Oh my goodness! but I think it's a really strong book that can mm. get you to faint because you can always close the book and actually you probably should if you think you're about to faint you should probably close the book but sometimes if you just can't close the book and it just pushes you over the edge or me in this case but yes I remember where I read it and I remember coming around thinking oh that wasn't my finest moment <laughs> <laughs> I was on holiday, it was hot, and I was on a balcony, and, oh, no, not good. Oh, my gosh.
1: Mm. Incredible cover quote, though. I, yes! I cried, I fainted.
2: Yes, yes.
1: Oh. Adele, I could talk to you about books all day. I think we're probably at time. It's been such
2: a pleasure. It's been so much fun having you on. It was actually my pleasure, really. I haven't stopped smiling throughout. I've just loved every minute. So, as you say, I could talk about books all day.
1: Huge thanks to Adele. Both of you is out in paperback on the 6th of February. I say, come for the how, stay for the why. If you love a thriller that makes you gasp, this is for you with brilliant writing and compelling characters to boot. You can follow us at WhyBooked on social media. Look out the book recommendations, words of wisdom from old guests and occasional shelfies. We love it when you share the podcast with your friends and huge thank you to everyone who has left us a five-star review. It's the best way to help other people discover us and their new favourite books. You can find a list of all the books mentioned by Adele at acast.com slash booked and check out her selection in our bookshop on bookshop.org. We'll be taking a break over the festive period. Producer Dale is still hoping Santa will bring him the collected priest. I've got my fingers crossed for the new Bunty annual. For now, I leave you with this from Maya Angelou. I've learned you can tell a lot about a person by the way he handles these three things. A rainy day, lost luggage and tangled Christmas tree lights. Thank you so much for lending us your ears in 2021. Merry Christmas.